Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram here from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our 29th podcast. On this episode, we look at NVIDIA's negative pre-announce, how they stopped blaming crypto, and are seeing weakness across the board, especially on the data center side. We take a tangent on political risk associated with Huawei, and finally finish up by looking at the slew of predecessors of Bitcoin, so the next time someone thinks they're being clever by calling Bitcoin the MySpace of crypto, you can list off the hundred or so predecessors and attempts at payment systems before Bitcoin. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, you've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Not much. How's it going? Pretty good. So two months ago, we had a podcast, um, which is pretty pretty recently. I mean, time flies so quickly that a couple months is you know not that much time in podcast land. But we had a uh, episode on Nvidia issuing results and a really bad guide. And at the time, they were blaming a bunch of the stuff on a crypto hangover. They were saying they had a bunch of extra inventory associated with the crypto, and it was taking a long time for that inventory to get eaten up you know, through their channel partners and then being sold. And just the other day, and again, this is just two months ago, so they're not even go- supposed to report. They're on like an off quarter cycle. They report one month after most other people report. Like we're in earnings season now, but their earnings season's like almost a month from now. So they pre-announced lowering the guidance that they had already issued. So they already gave uh, terrible guidance. And on top of that, they just announced that they're going to lower guidance again. So I thought it'd be worth talking about because you know that was a pretty uh, that was actually a pretty popular episode. But it's it's pretty important in terms of the tech landscape uh, because of how interrelated a lot of the semiconductor companies are. I think on the last episode we had talked on the Nvidia episode we were talking about basically you know why so many chip companies. Are indicators of how the of the general health of the tech economy. So yesterday, uh, I thought it'd be worth reading from their financial guidance. So this is what they said. I'll note they only mentioned crypto actually once, uh, whereas the it was you know almost every paragraph during their earnings transcript they were talking about the crypto hangover. Crypto right? hangover. Yeah, yeah, crypto hangover. So now that I guess the they're not talking about the hangover, they're talking about what is actually going on. And so this is a lot more uh, specific, which is which is helpful because they can't just target one kind of niche industry, and they're seeing a lot more broader weakness, which is uh, interesting and concerning for the rest of the tech sector. So this is what they say: in gaming, Nvidia's previous fourth quarter guidance had embedded a sequential decline due to excess mid-range channel inventory following the cryptocurrency boom. So it's ten seventies. 
right? Those ten seventies, <laughs> and they got a dash between crypto and currency. That's and they have. I don't know if they've done that before. The reduction in that inventory and its impact on the business have proceeded largely in line with management's expectations. However, deteriorating macroeconomic conditions, particularly in China, impacted consumer demand for NVIDIA gaming GPUs. In addition, sales of certain high-end GPUs using NVIDIA's new Turing architecture were lower than expected. These products deliver a revolutionary leap in performance and innovation with real-time ray tracing and AI, but some customers have delayed their purchases while waiting for lower price points and further demonstrations of RTX technology in actual games. So that's on the gaming side. Yeah. On the data center side, they said revenue also came in short as expectations. A number of deals in the company's forecast did not close in the m- last month of the quarter as cu- customers shifted to a more cautious approach. Despite these near-term headwinds, NVIDIA has a large and expanding addressable market opportunity in AI and high-performance computing, and the company believes its competitive position is intact. And we'll talk about that one a little more because it's uh, it's pretty interesting. So Jensen Wang, the CEO, he said, Q4 was an extraordinary, unusually turbulent and disappointing quarter. Looking forward, we're confident in our strategies and growth drivers. And then he has a you know kind of like optimistic outlook that he says, the foundation of our business is strong and more evident than ever. The accelerated computing model NVIDIA pioneered is the best path forward to serve the world's insatiable computing needs. The markets we are creating, gaming, design, HPC, high-performance computing, AI, and autonomous vehicles are important, growing, and will be very large. We have excellent strategic positions in all of them. And just to give context, so they lowered by almost 20%. So last time they had a guidance of 2.7 billion plus or minus 2%. Now they're saying 2.2 billion plus or minus 2%. So the midpoint of that's, yeah, it's huge, 18.5%. That's in two months. Gross margin. Wow. 62.3% what they originally announced. And now they're lowering that to 55%. So that's huge too. That's a 7% drop in gross margin. And these guys are, we've talked about this on prior podcasts too, not just the last NVIDIA one. We had a NVIDIA podcast when we're trying to talk about, we're comparing Bitmain's IPO back when it was super hot and everyone was talking about it to the NVIDIA IPO and how all these chip companies are super constrained to pricing and inventories. So once inventories start getting uh, stacked up, they start lowering prices and that affects their margin. So these guys just dropped, and this isn't even quarter on quarter. This is literally two months ago, they say it's going to be 62 and a half. And now they're saying it's 55, 56. So to me, it sounds like two months ago, they definitely saw a slowdown. They kind of just blamed it all on crypto and may have been a little hopeful that you know the rest of the market was going to be fine. And now they're seeing an actual slowdown in the yeah. rest of the market. Well, their line up there is uh, in data center revenue also came in short of expectations. Right. So maybe, you know, they're essentially their gaming GPUs are the ones that overlap with a lot of the cryptocurrencies. So maybe they thought that's where the slowdown was, but their expectations on data center were were the ones that really got them for this the second lowering. Yep. And often in company like NVIDIA, they won't actually know what kind of revenue they're going to do until, I mean, this isn't that surprising. A lot of companies are like this. Towards the end of your quarter, you are going to have a better idea of how your quarter went. It's less of an issue in like, uh, you know, say a service company that has revenue booked out a year. It's going to be less of, say, a software company that has like multi-year enterprise license signed. 
But for a product company that sells chips that's highly tied to demand you see from data centers, other chip inventory associated with, like, say, laptops and PCs that are sold, uh, gaming machines. So any slowdown in any of these markets towards the end of a quarter are going to make that quarter way more volatile in terms of visibility. Like you just won't know exactly how much money you're going to make until you actually close a lot of the business. So it felt like it was a little bit of pulling back, but also, you know, when they last reported, it was back in, uh, back in November, you know, then holidays showed up and also there was a market crash, right? Market started crashing. And now that we're in the third week of January and companies would typically be willing to spend, they probably have a lot more visibility. So they're going to close their quarter out in like a couple of days, meaning end of January. I don't know if exactly their quarter ended yesterday or it's going to end in two days, but their quarter is going to end in the next like little bit. Hmm. Now they know exactly how much they're going to make. So they probably saw a lot of slowdown these last few weeks. They're just not getting the kind of buying that they thought they would. Makes sense. And we saw this with like Apple's results and their guidance. I think Caterpillar, it's not a tech company. It's just a, it's tech in its own way, but it's not tech tied to semiconductors. But they issued some cautionary guidance associated with like a potential global recession. So it's a bit concerning. So they had their press release with the specific numbers around their guidance, but they also have this other letters to their shareholders with a lot more info. And this one's interesting, and I think we can have a lot of fun talking through it because it's uh, it's got a lot more like tech-focused stuff. So this is what they say in this letter. So they first off, they said they're lowering their guidance to two point two billion plus or minus two percent, and. We are disappointed to revise our guidance, which is already down significantly. It was a challenging quarter with extraordinary dynamics. Let me explain what happened and outline the actions we are taking to get our company back to growth. So Q4 guidance we provided in November reflected the effect of excess channel inventory of Pascal mid-range JPUs that resulted from the sharp decline of cryptocurrency demand. I guess Pascal are those 1070s. Yeah, uh, so that generation of hardware uses the Pascal architecture. Okay, I think the new Turing is the the RTX, but I might be wrong. Yep. We delayed the planned production ramp of several new products to allow excess channel inventory to deplete, which resulted in significantly lowered Q4 guidance. Exiting Q3, we estimated channel inventory would be largely depleted within one or two quarters, or between February and April. Our view of that remains unchanged. Interesting. I wonder too how much they're affected by, uh, you know, the sudden decline cryptocurrency demand also meant that like people weren't keeping those GPUs around. And like, you know, if you had like 10 GPUs, you're not using them to play games. So probably there was a disproportionate high percentage of those being put into the used market. And I wonder how much that affects sales versus people just not buying new gaming GPU. You know, with a gaming GPU might have one or two. And let's say you didn't buy one this Christmas, but you might like next year versus you bought 10 GPUs for mining and then you just put eight for sale in December. That's going to be a very different dynamic in terms of what's available in the market, right? Yeah, I think so. And demand um, for new GPUs. Especially because uh, miners, like you said, they're not, it's not like, oh, I can't use my GP for mining. I'm going to use it for games. I'm going to have to or I'd, I want to get rid of it. Yeah. So I haven't actually looked at pricing. It's probably something we should look at, but I just put, pulled up uh, Craigslist, like the Bay Area Craigslist. There's yeah. quite a few used GPUs 
on the market. Yeah. Like my suspicion is that you have a disproportionately high amount of used inventory, which is then going to make it harder for NVIDIA to deplete their excess channel inventory. Because like, okay, you probably don't want like a two and a half year old GPU, but in a lot of cases, if someone bought one, put it in a mining rig for a few months and is selling it at a huge discount because they're just trying to unload to get some money back, it's a much better purchase than buying new. Are you saying, like, who is the buyer in that case? Just a gamer? Yeah, exactly. So A, they might have excess inventory because they projected for having cryptocurrency sales, but there's still a core amount of sales that's related to gaming and people building desktops and whatnot. But even a lot of that market might go to the used market if the availability is suddenly way, way more than it's ever been at much lower prices than you'd normally expect. Yep. Yeah, the prices seem lower. I'm just looking at them. I see some 375, 450, 500. That that seems lower than uh, you know where they were even six months ago. Yeah, yeah. I think the 1070s were sitting comfortably around the 500 yep. mark. All right. So they continue as we work through Q4. The global economy decelerated sharply, particularly in China, affecting consumer demand for NVIDIA gaming GPUs. Also, with initial shipments of new high-end RTX GPUs selling above MSRP, some customers may have delayed their purchase while waiting for lower price points and further demonstrations of RTX technology in actual games. So this is interesting. So it sounds like the demand for RTX... I mean, the only reason I can imagine them selling above MSRP was that the demand for these RTX GPUs was more than they could produce at launch. Yep. So that's not necessarily... A bad thing. I mean, it's bad for Q4, but it's not a bad thing longer term. So are you familiar with this RTX architecture? Uh, like I'm how- not. I'm assuming it's just their brand new one. Like, you know, every few years there's yeah. a generational shift in how these things are done. Like we were on the GTX. It says it brings together real-time ray tracing, artificial intelligence, and programmable shading for a whole new way to experience games. And then it goes on, like if you go to their site to go see, like there's a little like FAQ on what RTX is and stuff. So so now now they go on and talk about data center a bit more. Data center customers buy NVIDIA GPUs for high performance computing to train deep learning AI models and to offer a cloud computing service. Purchases can be large and not always periodic or predictable. As the quarter progressed, customers around the world became increasingly cautious due to economic uncertainties. A number of deals did not close in the last month of the quarter. Uh, That is alarming. Yeah, so that sounds like it's, you know, these are data centers that are buying the stuff en masse. You know, they they probably have, they they spend a lot on the sales side to get to close these deals. But this line here, as the quarter progressed, customers around the world becoming increasingly cautious due to economic uncertainties. That's a pretty big tell. Yeah. Because that's not that's not just going to affect data center purchases on GPUs. That has a relationship with all the things that data centers are going to buy. Right, your hard drives, memory, your regular CPUs, and then also, what does that mean for uh, like just demand for like cloud services? Like, is, does that affect Amazon or Azure or GCP? Is that like a tell for those services? So I imagine that, you know, I, I don't know what like AWS's hardware, like I don't know who they're buying from, right? But if any of those guys are part of this, quote unquote, are becoming increasingly cautious due to economic uncertainties, you know, it might be. So 
these could be data centers at you know like smaller companies that have in-house yeah. service stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, it definitely is the big cloud provider. So all of them do have GPU instances, yep. and like AWS, for example, it is NVIDIA that uh, provides like they use NVIDIA GPUs, and I don't know if all of them do, but most of them do use NVIDIA GPUs. Yep. So I guess the question there is like AWS, who's just had you know blowout results quarter after quarter for like three four years now. If the like the tell would be basically if they're pulling back, that's because they're seeing they might be seeing a slowdown, or just because they're worried that there will be a slowdown. That those are the two cases for them. Hmm. I think that's tough for us to figure out, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not sure because like who knows how far in advance they they budget for these things. Like I don't know. Yeah, but like intra quarter within January, that seems pretty dramatic. Yeah, that, that to me sounds like they had a big deal or two that just didn't close, that messed up their numbers. So they go on to talk more about macroeconomic factors. They say macroeconomic factors are beyond our control. Even so, there are many ways we can grow. We are creating new capabilities for existing markets as well as growing into new markets. Let me outline some of the growth drivers for this year. The first one, RTX 2060 for gaming launched at CES. It's priced at 349 It's the first Turing GPU for the mass market. Uh, and they go on to explain that it does ray tracing, graphics, and AI. Uh, and they demonstrated Battlefield 5 with RTX ray tracing at excellent frame rates. And that it's now available. Second, we launched our over 40 new models of GeForce RTX gaming notebooks. Third, Quadro RTX will be the most significant workstation GPU upgrade in 10 years. Fourth, we announced new applications of our data center GPUs, including deep learning inference, data analytics, machine learning, and we created partnerships to bring NVIDIA computing to global enterprise customers. And I guess they give us a little more information about that because they spent most of the growth drivers in, in this section. So I think it's probably worth talking about. We're working closely with hyperscalers around the world to integrate NVIDIA, Tensor RT, and GPUs into their inference production flow. Google TensorFlow is now integrated with NVIDIA, Tensor RT, and Google Cloud Platform is the first CSP, uh, I guess that's a cloud service provider, to announce availability of NVIDIA T4 Tensor Core GPUs in the cloud. What's your take there? I remember we were talking offline a little bit about on the on the Google side. Yeah, I mean, so just broadly, it seems like you know they're basically just saying that hey, we have this RTX thing that's really good and off to a great start. We're pushing it into notebooks as well, which is like growing really fast, and that's great. We've updated Quadro. Quadro was like their workstation graphics cards, so you know we've made like a big breakthrough there. And so this should sell really well. So which, you know, all makes sense. Maybe it's just too early to tell. It's too early for that to show up in Q4, but it might turn out to be very positive, especially if AMD is not able to compete with RTX. Yep. As far as the data centers go, so again, like, you know, I don't understand exactly like the value proposition of something like NVIDIA Tensor RT, but you can see where, like, just looking at Amazon's site, Azure site, GCP, they're all using NVIDIA for their GPU services, which is a pretty big deal. And then if NVIDIA is further you know, integrating with things like Google TensorFlow at the hardware level, 
or even providing like a proprietary like language like they had with CUDA that essentially just gives them a bit of a moat around competitors. That probably is a really promising long-term feature for them. Yep. And there's they do talk a little bit about the, the value proposition even in here. They say uh, retail, healthcare, financial, and consumer internet services companies have enormous amounts of business data. We, we all know that. They use machine learning to create predictive AI models from data. The compute time to process data and their and train their AI models can da- take days to weeks. NVIDIA can accelerate machine learning as we have done with deep learning. NVIDIA created Rapids, a software stack to accelerate data analytics and machine learning frameworks. Rapids does for machine learning what CUDNN dubs for deep learning. Major cloud or enterprise data science platforms are integrating with Rapids now, which will open this large market for NVIDIA GPUs. So, you know, going back yeah, to what so you said earlier, this this sounds pretty significant. Timing is tough. It's hard to figure out exactly what the timing yeah. of this is. But, you know, if they create that moat where others can't compete on the speed at which their chips can process this data, that's pretty significant. Yeah. But the, to me, like stuff like this Rapids, it's also about developer mindshare. So going back to the uh, CUDA example, you had this case where, you know, there were certain industries that CUDA was like the preferred language and part of the preferred stack for doing any sort of graphics work. And so what that resulted in was people just buying NVIDIA GPUs. Yep. And if they're able to do that same thing for Rapids or this CUDNN, where their software stack essentially becomes a way to lock people into their their hardware stack, that's a pretty big deal. Yep. Because this is obviously a huge space. Right. So, and then they continue, enterprises around the world increasingly need high-performance computing infrastructure to accelerate their data analytics and AI workloads. These systems are state-of-the-art with complex integration of large-scale computing, networking, and storage software. And direct support is difficult as companies are in diverse industries and locations. We announced partnerships with Cisco, DataDirect Networks, IBM, NetApp, Pure Storage to create pre-integrated systems that can be sold through their vast global IT channels. Interesting. Yeah, like they're basically trying to just embed themselves directly into the into what's going to get sold to the data centers anyway. These data center yeah. initiatives, accelerating inference and machine learning, and leveraging partners to reach global enterprises will grow our market and reduce the volatility of hyperscaler deals. That's an interesting note. I guess so. Rather than having to sell like, so this is how I'm understanding this, just from the you know three lines that we have here. Right now, you know, Nvidia has their like Tesla chips and Tensor and whatnot, and say you know someone comes to them and wants a relatively custom large scale setup, they don't provide that service. They'll just sell you ten thousand chips. Yep. And they're doing these like big deals, and like loss of some of these big deals is probably what affected their Q four revenue. What this sounds like is that essentially IBM or you know Cisco will have already built a system that essentially is a level of infrastructure on top of those 10,000 chips. So maybe they have 10,000 chips, some memory, some CPU, like some amount of networking, like they're they're deploying a fully working larger scale system Yep. and selling that through. And so rather than having to be involved in each of these like long like deployments or these large deployments, they actually can go to the people that are implementing these systems and essentially make these sell these large orders of much more like predictable quantities and predictable configurations. Yep. This last part is might be interesting particularly to you, 
you're you're the car guy between us. But uh, finally, at CS, we announced Drive Autopilot, the world's first commercially available L2 Plus. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? Yeah. So there's uh, this uh, concept of like level one through level five autonomy in self-driving cars. Level one being like nothing, like you, or, you know, basically nothing. And level five being completely autonomous to the point of like, you wouldn't even have driving controls and like, you know, Tesla autopilot can being something like level two where it can assist you, but you're fundamentally supposed to be the one driving. Uh Whereas you get towards level three and four, the idea is the car is doing most of the driving and you might only have to jump in if it can't, or if there's an emergency. There's a lot of problems with that, but yeah. So level two and like level two plus is sort of where the world is at right now. Gotcha. So it sounds like they've announced Drive Autopilot. So it's a L2 plus self-driving car computer. Systems from tier one partners, Bosch, Continental, Desai, Vionier, and SZF. I have to be honest, I haven't heard of the last three of these. Uh, Desai and Vionier, I haven't. ZF makes transmissions. Oh, these are car parts. Yeah, these are tier one suppliers. They do like major assemblies. Volvo was at L2 plus design win. We announced Daimler at CES. Drive Autopilot is a major milestone for us and takes our high-functioning self-driving capability into the mass market. And they kind of just nice little summary of what happened in the quarter at the end of the shareholder letter. They say, you know, it was a tough quarter. It was uh, turbulent, but they're confident uh, going forward, especially because of gaming design, HPC, AI, and autonomous vehicles, as you expect would expect them to say. So like two months ago, when they gave bad guidance for the first time, stock got pummeled. And I think a lot of people were kind of, I mean, people definitely sold it. That's, that's why it went down. And there were people kind of on the sidelines, not exactly sure what to do. Like, are if they are selling, and we talked about this on the last podcast where like semiconductors are super cyclical. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're, we're just there at the top of the cycle. So there's still a lot of, uh, like a, a lot of room to go down. Which is an entirely reasonable view. There's no reason not to think that these semis are very cyclical. Tech market is very cyclical. Yeah, maybe it'll change one day, but it hasn't yet. Yeah, and for that matter, the automotive market as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And especially the autonomous driving stuff is interesting because, uh, you know, essentially all these car companies, their long-term play is on data. So they're essentially thinking that. Once you have autonomous cars and just in general, more connected vehicles, but the idea is that like electric and autonomous and connected vehicles go hand in hand. And so their Mm -hmm. expectation is that they're going to be making tons of money from the actual data. So everyone wants to own the data of like where you're driving, how you're driving, all of that stuff. So what's interesting is the more uh, like autonomous capability you have, the more market there is for NVIDIA, again, to be selling GPUs for uh, their other machine learning work. Um, question on that. What other type of data do I want to track Like that's not on my phone already, as, that I can't get out of the phone? Or do the car companies just want to have that as a revenue stream? Like, What are the kinds of things that they would track and why? I mean, I think it's ultimately ad tech, the same way that Google, by having like, where you've been going and like where you spend your time, they can serve you better ads. I think a lot of it is really just ad tech related uh, information okay. uh, more so than, you know, like your insurance, maybe your insurance company, uh, they already do that. Like where if they track your driving, they'll give you a discount. Right. But I, I think from what we've seen, because some of the OEMs have had fallouts with like Google, for example, because essentially they're 
all trying to own that data because they think that data is going to be very valuable uh, from an ad tech perspective. Yep. So there's the need for ML for the actual execution of self-driving, but then also the what they do with all the data they have side is supposedly going to be a pretty big market. Yep. So um, stock sold off a ton that back two months ago, and then when they announced this the other day, it was down another you know fifteen percent, and then today it was down another five percent. So, and I think that's entirely fair. The question now the question is like, what do you do with the stock? So we have a handful of views that I thought would be fun to talk about. So uh, I, I forgot this one thing. It's just a great line. I can't believe I missed it. So the last line of the shareholder letter, I have to read this. So the NVIDIA you invested in has incredible talent doing important work for our future. The important work we do is only possible with your support. For that, we are tremendously appreciative. appreciative. This quarter was a real punch in the gut. But your company is resilient, creative, and repeatedly rises to the great challenges. We will shake this off and come back strong. I just thought that was a pretty like strong yeah. statement at That's the end of that letter. Yeah. I mean, understandable. They, what, half their stock price got wiped out and then having to give lower guidance twice. Yeah. That's pretty brutal. Yep. So it, we'll start off with everyone's favorite, Jim Cramer. And I'm being, oh I'm being facetious there. He was pretty negative on them. You know, the guy doesn't really, I mean, I'll be honest, he doesn't really know, like he just says stuff and he seems like he's more of an entertainment personality for CNBC than anything else. I don't know if you ever saw this, but back in 2008, there's a video of him on YouTube screaming like, do not st- sell Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns is totally fine. I'm, yeah, I'm, I've uh, seen I'm that. paraphrasing, but it's hilarious. Like, And literally yeah. two days later or three days later, a week later, it, it, they go bankrupt, or not bankrupt, but they're sold for like $2, which is you know 90% discount to wherever it's trading. So you know, he, he was negative on Vidya. Very binary type of thinking. His, his, whole, his whole view is just like China's bad. Um, I don't really know what that means exactly, but okay. So there are a few other, like few other more reasonable takes. And I think the most reasonable to take with this is something like along the lines of, okay, obviously crypto was a big growth area in 2017. The opposite happened in 2018. They had planned for it to be bigger. It wasn't. So they basically wrote it off. And that's what the crypto hangover was. And that's basically what we yeah. saw in, you know, two months ago. So I think you kind of like write that one off. Yeah. It's these new ones that the are new ones that are concerning. Yeah. Right now, it feels like they are entirely tied to macro conditions. For them to see growth in data center and on the new GPU line, they probably have to see an uptick in their customers on the data center side. And the data center guys are probably going to only spend if they have a little more clarity about what's going on in the future. So that's why all this stuff is like so tied together. So I'm not going to say this is screaming sell or buy, but I think I can say with pretty like reasonable confidence that this is very much tied to macro conditions at this point. But what it does have, it's not like the macro conditions that Caterpillar has. It's a very like specific area within tech. So if you have a long view on AI and ML and the adoption of AI and ML and things like being able to speed up your training model, training time and things like that, then there's literally only one stock to own on the GPU side, which is these guys. 
especially to your point earlier about like AMD, are they going to compete on this? It, like, it, I, th- I think they're pretty far behind now. Yeah, like on the gaming side, it, it goes back and forth, but I think gaming is going to be a smaller and smaller and smaller piece of the equation as like compared to data center sales. And so they seem to have a very, very clear advantage on the on the like, you know, data center side. Right. Like all the cloud providers are running NVIDIA. Right. So as long as that remains a a tailwind for them, you know, the stock is a buy. It's just it's hard to know at what level. Because I too am concerned about macro conditions right now. There's really nothing great going on. We have like we have political risk that we haven't had in years. We have Fed tightening interest rates. Obviously, we have a slowdown in a lot of these chip companies. So it's hard to know what's going on. On top of that, we have all this uh, this Huawei stuff. You've been following that news? No. So Huawei is this big uh, telecom company. They're supposed to help roll out 5G, and a lot of the 5G infrastructure is going to be built on top of them. Okay. But... Huawei's also out of China. There's a lot of concerns with having the backbone of 5G be running on a uh, Oh, China I did company. see that. I did see that. Wasn't there like some statement from the Department of Justice or something to not like there's been some relatively political statements around Huawei, right? Yeah. No, there uh the CFO of Huawei was arrested in Canada. That's right. Yeah. And in retaliation, the Chinese um, I guess they couldn't arrest any like CEOs, so they changed the. Basically, they had a guy in jail for uh, drug-related crime, and all drug-related crime in China is just, um, you, I mean, you, like you get life in prison basically, or death penalty, depending on how bad it is. Like if you're smuggling yeah. heroin into China, you're you're screwed. That's it. Your life's over. If you like light up a joint on the streets of Shenzhen, I I don't know what happens. It's probably not good, so we don't recommend anyone do that. But. Um, this guy basically he was in jail for a life sentence, but then they kind of like overturned that and changed it into an execution. This was a Canadian national. Oh wow! Yeah, so it is a very hot topic, and you know, there's a lot at stake here. Like, there's concerns around security and five G on its own, and I think the current U.S. administration's take is like we can't have the backbone of five G be built on Chinese equipment. Because, yeah, because of security concerns. So I'm actually just looking at something that came out relatively recently. The Department of Justice yesterday actually filed charges of uh, Huawei trying to steal trade secrets, and uh, they have formal charges against the CFO. Yeah. So this is like this is political risk. This is like global political risk. So what could happen here, right? Like we just tr- think about like possible bad scenarios. Not necessarily worst case. I don't think like this isn't the kind of thing that I think you have to worry about nuclear war, but this is the kind of thing you have to worry about. Okay, China stops buying American, uh, it stops buying Cisco, stops buying Juniper Networks. So Juniper Networks just uh, guided pretty terribly today. It was trading down as well. And so say the, say the Chinese stop buying American goods, stop buying American tech, like Cisco, like I said, Cisco and Juniper and, you know, yeah. NVIDIA. NVIDIA is saying that they're seeing weakness in China. So uh, weakness could be mean all kinds of things. Weakness could be actually that they have decided to stop buying that stuff. Some stuff is going to yeah, be hard to actually, replace. Like NVIDIA GPUs, yes, is going to be very difficult to replace. But telecom equipment, probably less so. Yeah. Another thing that happened recently on the reverse side was a, Foxconn adding production to Vietnam and India. 
And the theory is that it's partly to insulate against potential like issues like this. Yeah, this sounds like a, probably a pretty good thing. So yeah, I guess that the letter from the Department of Justice, I'm, I'm just looking at it now, I saw an article in BBC, a second case alleges Huawei stole technology from T-Mobile used to test smartphone durability as well as obstructing justice and committing wire fraud. The T-Mobile tech called Tappy mimicked human fingers to test phones. In all, the U.S. has laid 23 charges against the company. So yeah, this is like a pretty big, uh, this is a pretty big deal. It's not as simple as like, oh, let's just get a trade deal and this will get all fixed. There's a lot of other stuff at stake. Say theoretically there was a trade deal, like barring all the all the things that could go wrong with that. If there are major security holes associated with Huawei and we're concerned about 5G, our European allies aren't necessarily on the same place as us. You know, it sounds like they're on the fence. Some European countries are fine with Huawei backing 5G, some are not. So we don't have consensus there either. And the 5G rollout presumably is a pretty big, uh, it's going to be a pretty big rollout. So I would say like, as far as the point, I guess the way, the way we got on this was that we were just talking about like potential risk to the market and political risk is a big one and a very new one too. It's always been there like 70s, 80s, 90s, is always there, 2000s of course, like with the attacks after September 11th. But since the feds had an almost 0% interest rate, political risk has not been a major concern of ours. So, but now it's back. Yeah. So we got like a whole group, whole new group of investors to have like. Not since you've had essentially not since you've had smartphones or cryptocurrency or like widespread machine learning. (laughs) So it's like it's brand new for modern tech. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, But yeah, Nvidia is something that you should like put on your watch list because it's a very interesting stock right now. If some of these headwinds get sorted out and you believe the ML and AI story, it's a pretty attractive stock. So one other thing that I thought would be fun to go through, and I think this is going to be a bit of teaser for like a future episode where we go into it in more detail, is recently like we read through... uh, So, okay, first of all, Faison, the course that you always recommend to everyone on cryptos is which one again? Uh, There's a Coursera course. I forget if it's just called Introduction to Cryptocurrency, but it's by Arvind Narayan. He's like a prof at Princeton. Uh, I think the course was put out in 2014, but like all of the fundamentals are still absolutely sound. It's like the best place to go get started if you just want to like learn how like the underpinnings of how cryptocurrency work. Yeah. And the course materials with that course, the the profs who put the course together, Arvind Narayan, Joseph Benoit, Edward Felton, Andrew Miller, and Stephen Goldfelder, they all contributed to this book that you can actually just get online. We'll link it link to it in the show notes. But it's a great book. It goes deep into cryptos, particularly how they work, how this cryptocurrency P2P protocols work and so forth. What I really like up front is on page three, they have a section called the preface, the long road to Bitcoin. And I like this one because we often hear, Faison, how often have you heard the complaint like, oh, Bitcoin's never going to work because it's the first of its kind. And we all know what happened to MySpace. Yeah, there's there's definitely that theory out there that like Bitcoin is just the first trial one. It proved out a few things, but like it has some fundamental issue, whether it be block size or transaction rate that like will cause it to die off and then a new better currency will take its place. Right. And what I like about this is that they have 
a couple paragraphs in here and then a list of all the digital and electronic payment systems and proposals that happened before Bitcoin. And there are quite a few. So I'll just read read from the the page here. The path to Bitcoin is littered with the corpses of failed attempts. I've compiled a list about a hundred cryptographic payment systems, both eCash and credit card-based technologies, that are notable in some way. Some are academic proposals that have been well cited, while others are actual systems that were deployed and tested. Of all the names on this list, there's probably only one that you recognize, PayPal. And PayPal survived only because it quickly pivoted away from its original idea of cryptographic payments on handheld devices. So there's a lot to learn from hist- from this history. Where do ideas from Bitcoin come from? Why do some technologies survive while many others die? What does it take for complex technical innovations to be successfully commercialized? If nothing else, the story will give you an appreciation for how remarkable it is that we finally have a real working payment mechanism that's native to the internet. And I'm going to just actually read through them. And we'll close out the podcast on that. So here we go. ACC, Agora, AIMP, Allopass, B-Money, Banknet, BitBit, BitGold, BitPass, CSET, Cafe, CheckFree, Click and Buy, ClickShare, CommerceNet, CommercePoint, CommerceStage, Cybank, CyberCash, CyberSense, CyberCoin, CyberGold, DigiGold, Digital Silk Road, Ecom, eGold, eCash, eCharge, eCoin, EDD, eVend, First Virtual, FSTC Electronic Check, Guild Cart, Globe Left, Hashcash, Hyundai, iBill, IKP, IMBMP, Intercoin, IPIN, Javien, Karma, Lottery Tickets, Lucre, Magic Money, Mandate, Micromint, Micromoney, Millicent, Minipay, Minitix, Mobile Money, Mojo, Molly, Mondex, MPTP, Net900, Netbill, Netcard, Netcash, Netcheck, Netfair, No Third, One Click Charge, PayMe, PayNet, PayPal, PaySafeCard, PayTrust, PayWord, Peppercoin, PhoneTix, PlaySpan, Polling, Proton, Redicharge, SPay, Sandia Lab eCash, Secure Courier, Semopo, Set, Set to Go, Subscript, Trivnet, Tub, TwitPay, Verifone, Visa Cash, Wally, Way to Pay, WorldPay, XPay. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.